Hello, and welcome to a long-delayed episode of Astrocytes. I'm your host, Andrew Rose, and today we have a special edition. I'm going to be reading my personal statement essay thing for Duquesne in Pittsburgh for a PhD program in clinical psychology, and I'd really like to get some feedback from everyone listening. So I'm going to start out with the prompt, or whatever you want to call it. I hate that word. Okay. Trace the development of your thinking with respect to psychology as a human science. Emphasize the authors and theories that have had the most impact on your conception of psychology. Discuss how you see the relationship between psychology and cultural diversity. And this is my response. The old sage dreamt that he had become a butterfly, flitting about as real as any other, when this man awoke, he questioned whether he had been dreaming of butterflies, or if the butterflies had dreamt of him. The story, uh, attributed to Zhuangzi, 369 to 286 BCE, or his dates, continues with the protagonist determining that, in fact, he is himself, and not a butterfly. The writer concludes tersely, saying, This is called the transformation of things. Superficially, this is a brief anecdote about the nature of dreams, but the value of these 61 Chinese characters is in applying the story to our lived experience. We can move between selves, between worlds, while still retaining our grasp on our shared reality. The transformation of things refers to the mutability of human experience. It is an intellectual precursor to the psychological concept of dissociation, Zhuangzi's deceptively brief description of such radical uncertainty demonstrates a philosophical view of the world as composed of multitudes. Zhuangzi, a lesser-known statement of Taoism, often wrote about perspective, such as how little the cricket knows of the needs of the hawk. This type of incisive storytelling illuminates a style of interacting with the world both keenly invested and carefully neutral. Such a balance of being present without being there is applicable to the work of treating people struggling with mental illness or in the grips of a major life crisis. Taoism teaches us that our life's path is something we must coexist with and not struggle against. It is this standard toward which we must all tirelessly strive, and for me it is an irreplaceable component of successful psychotherapy. I've chosen to apply to Duquesne's clinical psychology program, and only this program, because I want to work closely with patients across cultural and linguistic barriers. Psychology, as a, a human science, stresses the individual's experience in the world. One of my goals for my work as a psychologist is to practice in communities where younger generations of immigrant families want to live as full citizens while retaining their family and community ties. Aside from immediate material considerations, feeling more at home in one's own country involves feeling a part of a, a shared community life. Existential psychotherapy is a way of placing one's life in a larger context by addressing death anxiety, for example, and using our shared fate as a way to put our individual lives in greater relief. As Irvin Yalom writes, 
Recognition of death contributes a sense of poignancy to life, provides a radical shift of life perspective, and can transport one from a mode of living characterized by diversions, tranquilization, and petty anxieties to a more authentic mode. Listening to patients in an existential framework also provides for a more informed study of grief and trauma. Treating victims of trauma is one of my biggest interests professionally, and I've learned that those who suffer from PTSD might be re-traumatized by unnecessarily returning to their triggering memories. A particular kind of therapy is called for when patients present having been mentally defoliated by torture or war. As Elaine Scarry writes, it is the intense pain of torture that destroys a person's self and world. Intense pain is also language-destroying. As the self disintegrates, so that which would express and project the self is robbed of its source and its subject. People such as those Scary describes have lost their connection to everyday reality. Scary continues by describing the torturer's aim of crushing their victim's entire world. She situates the theatrical forced confession as among the most effective tools for achieving this goal. By foreclosing all possible connections to their former reality, the torturer inflicts pain both physically and by destroying the victim's life before and after the pain stops. How can a psychologist help a victim of severe trauma, a survivor of torture, someone who spent decades in solitary confinement? Psychodynamic psychotherapy is one way of reaching people in such a brutalized state. But by insisting on an archaeological excavation of the patient's traumatic memories, the therapist can inadvertently re-traumatize and re-injure their patient. This is where classical psychoanalysis and many of its psychodynamic progeny are of extremely limited utility. And so this uncertain relationship with Freud is unavoidable for any serious student of his work but his memory survives because many of his profoundly insightful ideas and cases still remain applicable. Actually, it took uh, Jean-Paul Sartre to help me understand Freud's role in existential psychotherapy. While Sartre and his equally formidable partner, Simone de Beauvoir, initially rejected Freudianism, they, they later reappraised its value. Beauvoir said, We had absorbed the letter rather than the spirit of these works. We were put off by their dogmatic symbolism and the technique of association which vitiated them for us. It was a long time before we realized that our emotional detachment from and indifference to our respective childhoods was to be explained by what we had experienced as children." End quote. The inarguable truth that childhood influences adulthood in subtle, innumerable ways was too powerful for Sartre and Beauvoir to dismiss. Existentialism and existential psychotherapy is founded on the ability to observe and revise one's opinion. Psychology as a human science must be nimble enough to incorporate or dismiss ideas or long-held beliefs if there is truly compelling evidence to do so. Furthermore, we must always seek the synthesis of two competing ideas 
blind dogmatism and ideological purity is anathema to humanistic psychology and to all serious endeavor. Patients must be understood on their own terms, and that requires a more considered, agile approach to their care. Existentialism is foremost a way of thinking, which we can bring to any interaction or thought. One of my biggest hurdles as a journalist and future clinician has been learning to listen properly. The process of learning how to listen and of paying attention to every detail and every bit of affective signaling is no doubt a never-ending one. At Cornell, I worked for a semester as a teaching assistant in Auburn Maximum Security Prison. The men were in a remedial composition course, and we helped edit their work. Listening, as a psychologist would, demands being something like a blank screen, off of which patients can work through their individual challenges when the students-slash-patients are prisoners in a maximum security prison, the ability to evaluate their work objectively is vulnerable to implicit biases. It was not until I broke the first rule of prison teaching, don't look up your students' crimes on the doc's website, that I lost my bearings. The first two of my students' crimes were unsurprising. Murder 2 from 1988, uh, M won't be out for another 15, he never faced me. Uh, R was in on a petty drug charge, it was bullshit. The third prisoner, w whose work I regularly edited, whose tobacco-stained fingers pointed at areas where he couldn't decipher my handwriting, L was imprisoned for first-degree rape. Our last few classes were uneventful but I wasn't able to bring as much enthusiasm to my time spent tutoring the convicted rapist. The feeling of before and after was sharp, distinct, and permanent. Those few bleak winter months going to the prison were a fascinating exercise in pedagogy and the prose of a person who may be sentenced to die behind those walls, eventually, and who will only ever have a view of the prison yard. At Auburn, none of the cells had windows facing the outside world. In a place uh, not dissimilar to Auburn Prison's towering gates and bureaucratic abyss, Jean-Martin Charcot examined patients and described revolutionary ways of understanding neurological diseases in the middle of the 19th century. And at the end of the French Revolution, around 1796, the massive indigent hospital in Paris, known as the Salpetriere, had begun a dramatic, enlightened transformation. And by the time Charcot entered his residency at the hospital, the chains used to restrict psychiatric patients slash inmates and other de degenerates had been broken for good. Charcot was the antithesis of the cruel, inhuman medicine of centuries past. Quote, During his entire life, his biographer Georges Guillain writes, Jam Charcot was a penetrating observer and a superb draftsman. When he traveled, he sketched places and people. At the hospital, he made drawings of patients who exhibited special anatomic anomalies. He had a predominant visual memory, such as is possessed by many painters and artists. Charcot was more than a physician. 
he used his whole mind to approach his patient's neurological symptoms. Charcot combined the purifying rigor of modern scientific standards with an appreciation for the gap between life as it is measured and life as it is lived. In his lectures at the Salpetriere, Charcot frequently points to the ways in which his deductive style differs from the, quote, nosology practiced by others. Indeed, the specialty that Charcot revolutionized, neurology, was sometimes classed as psychiatry's coeval. The etiology of both types of ailment is usually found between the patient's ears. And Charcot was a mentor to and collaborator with Freud. The two of them were largely responsible for the somewhat unfairly discarded research on hysteria. While we now know that what was called hysteria is indeed an ICD-10-friendly medical phenomenon, the initial clinical descriptions leave modern practitioners rightly un uncomfortable. While Charcot was ahead of his time in many ways, his compassionate view that women are human beings was sidelined for a more doctrinaire, perishable, and woefully misogynist reading of a patient's symptoms. Thus, those who know only the abbreviated story of hysteria as one of Freud's many reprehensible blind spots are as guilty as those who see, quote, hysterical behavior as the result of a restless uterus. With one eye, we can see as much as anyone can, but walking, driving, moving deftly among a crowd, these things demand binocular vision. The world may look perfectly normal, and we may be totally unaware of our sensory deficits until we try to move about as others do. This is to say we cannot know the gaps in our education until we try to bring our knowledge to bear in the real world. Reappraisal and a willingness to scorn false dogma and revive long-discarded ideas when facts or our understanding of facts change is the true value of any education. In order, in order to be there with patients and to bring them some measure of comfort, if not healing, we must be prepared to revise our received wisdom on the fly. We must be prepared to help the patient discover what they need and to help them find it. So that's the uh, statement. I, I really hope you like it, and please contact us with your comments. You know, subscribe to us on iTunes, SoundCloud, what have you. Uh, and you can email us at astrocytespod at gmail.com. Um, this has been Astrocytes, and thank you for listening. I heard.